You know, we started the service. I, uh, I wasn't convinced y'all were really into that. So we're going to do it again. All right? Let me find my place. I'm going to draw attention to uh, Adam out there holding his little boy. Praise God for that service. Fatherhood, it's a blessing to me to see it happening in the sanctuary uh, uh, among the saints. So I'm encouraged by that. But let's go back to it. Our commitment to one another, Cedarview. Repeat after me. I'm committing to your discipleship. Because the gospel is transforming me. I hope you really believe those things. I hope you're really committed to those things because really what we see in the text of Scripture is the church doing just that. Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. Acts chapter 2. And you recall this series that we're in. We've in we, we're in. We've entitled Reset. Reset. So my goal is, of all the chaos that's been happening the past year, um, every measure that we've endured as a church, my hope is that we can go back to some of the basics of why we do what we do, what God has called us to be, and not just do, but who we are as his people, gospel people, people who are bound to one another now. I want you to Keep these things in mind as we go throughout these next several weeks. And if there is one thing I want you to remember other than the commitment you just made, I hope it is that disciple-making is a task for the church. Disciple-making is a task for the church. Last week, we covered a bit of our individual commitment to that, the cost of following Jesus, the reality that we are called to value him and his kingdom over against anything else in our lives, no matter what it is, good, bad, important, not important. Jesus is priority. His kingdom is priority over these things. Now, that was a text from Luke last week, and we're going to continue with Luke's writing. You know, Luke uh, wrote his gospel. He also gave us the recording of the book of Acts. And so uh, Luke is helping us Make the connection between Jesus' ministry and the life of the church. And I have said these things in many ways and in different contexts, but uh, I don't think it can be said enough or too much. But we often cite the Great Commission as Christians being so important for us. Go and make disciples. That concept of going into all the world and making disciples of all nations. And we love to uh, cite that. We, we love to recount that. But do you realize that as Luke records the ministry of Jesus, he's also recording the ministry of the church and saying, hey, these things are not different from one another. It's continuous. So Jesus gives the Great Commission, but you know what he says to the disciples? As he's coming near the end, he says, go into all the world, but you need to wait. Wait until you've been given power from on high. So I think it is very interesting that the Lord Jesus would commission his people. And you would think it's like, all right, let's just go out and, and storm the world with the gospel. But then he says, no, you got to wait. 
Here's your commission. Here's what you're being sent to do, but you can't even do it yet. So think about that. He commissions them. He tells them to wait. They wait. Guess who comes? It's the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit creates the church. Jesus didn't just take his disciples and say, all right, y'all are lone rangers out there. Go far and wide. Go to every corner all on your own. No. The church being the body of Christ is the entity, the organism, the organization that reaches with all of its members and, and body parts into those corners, those cracks of this world to make the gospel known. I don't know how to emphasize that truth anymore because that has been revolutionary to to my understanding of of the life of the church. And as we constantly are fighting our own selfishness and individualism, especially in our uh, Western society, this truth is so important. Disciple-making is a task for the church. And the church, upon its creation in Acts uh, 1 and 2, the church, upon its creation, has everything it needs to make disciples. Everything it needs to make disciples. So to give you a bit of context, we're on the heels of Pentecost in Acts chap- the end of Acts chapter 2, which is where we're going today. Verse 42, we're on the heels of Pentecost. Uh, tongues of fire have rested upon uh, the early disciples as they were gathered in that room. And then we see uh, Peter's sermon preached. And then 3,000. It says that about 3,000 souls were saved at this time. And notice what Luke does. The first thing he does after Pentecost is give us a picture of the life of the church. We get to see the church at the end of Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. We get to see the church in its original state. Some commentators say that this is the church in its pristine condition. It's an interesting thought. There's, there's a, a lot that can be said about that. But I want you to make this text, Acts 2, 42 through 47, I want you to make this text your go-to when it comes to the life of the church. And as we read this, I don't want you to think uh, that this was an account of the church over several days or even several weeks. Commentators agree that this is a testimony of the church over several years. And we get to get a glimpse of the rhythms of life of the local church, the early church. Really what we're covering today ought to be a review for many of you. You've heard some of these concepts that I'm about to unfold. I hope maybe you can dig deeper into them and be more committed to them as we walk through this text today. I want you to join me, Acts 2, 42 through 47. Hear the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, we once again thank you for your word. In it, we know, are the words of life where we get to see Jesus himself, the incarnate word. God, we're thankful for the son who um, is the one thing that holds all things together, the, the one from whom we find the meaning of all of life and all of existence. We pray, Father, that as we look to him today, we would be more confident in who he is, what he has done, and what that means for us. Father, we pray that in all these things, you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. The title today is Rhythms of Discipleship. Rhythms of Discipleship. I want you to think about the rhythms in your life. The rhythms in your family's life. Our rhythms, I hope you understand what I mean when I say rhythm. Sort of the, the, the routines, the uh, almost like following the beat of, of, of music. That's how a lot of our uh, lives operate. I would say all of them do in some way or another. You see the rhythms of weeks and months and years. We see the rhythms of, of work. Even around your house, think about the rhythms of yard work. Right now, I'm thinking like all the things that I'm going to have to do uh, when the springtime fully comes in. Back to mowing the yard. Back to running the weed eater and the blower. These are rhythms. We have rhythms of eating. We have rhythms of sleeping. Rhythms of entertainment and work in our lives. And rhythms are not always the same that they used to be, or they may not be the same that they're going to be, but rhythms adjust as new things come along, right? I know some of you with uh, young children, infants, you're thinking, man, all my rhythms went out the window when I had this baby. I would say, no, you're just learning to adjust to new rhythms. You're learning to uh, pattern your rhythms after your life now because because it has changed. We all know what it's like to adjust our rhythms in the midst of a pandemic. All of our rhythms, even though they may be adjusted, they remain intact because of the things that you value in your life. The things that the people around you value. That's why we're talking about rhythms today. And I want to show you these rhythms from this text. Before we get there, though, I want to I want to challenge you with this. I believe this text itself is very challenging for us. The reason I want you to go back to this text and let this text really, uh, as, as first order, shape your understanding of the church, I believe it challenges us in a few different ways. I think it challenges our individualism. You can't read this text about the church and then walk away thinking that the church is here to just serve you. It's impossible. 
Also, we see it challenges our expectations. It challenges our expectations. You know, a lot of times we, we view the church in terms of what we have determined it should be. We evaluate the church or, you know, in our society, I mean, it's, it's buffet line when it comes to church. You choose whatever kind of church you want to be in. You know, they're not this for me or they're not enough of that for me. So I'm going to find a church that's just like this. And it challenges our expectations because this is normal life. And I would say it also challenges our misconceptions, our misconceptions. This text ought to be foundational to our understanding of the church. And our theme today, our theme today, the rhythmic life of the church provides the essential atmosphere for making and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. It's kind of long. The rhythmic life of the church provides the essential atmosphere for making and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. As I read the text just a moment ago, you saw those very first few words, and they devoted themselves to these things. They devoted themselves to these things. This is important. This word devoted is the idea of consistency. It's where we get really the the idea of rhythms in this text. This is the ongoing, regular, reoccurring life of the church. They're abiding in these things. They're continuing in these things. They devoted themselves to these things. As we walk through these rhythms, I want you to remember that devotion. I see five rhythms here, five rhythms. They're going to be up on the screen for you, and then we're going to walk through each one of them individually. So the rhythms are teaching, fellowship, service, worship, and evangelism. Teaching, fellowship, service, worship, and evangelism. And these are not original to me. These are actually a list that come from uh, John Hammond, a professor of mine, There's a lot of commentators that have made their lists of what the early church was characterized by. Uh, To me, this is the the best, maybe the most sufficient list. So um, I don't want you to be let down by just the routineness of these five things. Oh, yeah, teaching, fellowship, service, worship, evangelism. That's what you're supposed to talk about in the church, right? Hopefully, you'll be able to peel back a bit more of what these mean for the church today. So first off, teaching from verse 42, the first part of verse 42, and then 43. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And then 43 says, It all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So this teaching, first off, is apostolic teaching. This is what Jude would call the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So do you understand that when we gather as a church, we are gathering around the teachings that were handed down by by the very first apostles? We may use the word uh, orthodoxy. 
These are the truths that have been passed down from generation to generation. They've been preserved by God himself. They're the truths that many of you may have learned in your own homes growing up. And for some of you, you didn't. And you learned to appreciate their beauty. Apostolic teaching. This apostolic teaching begins with the, the most important truth that has ever been known or spoken, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching right after they heard an apostle teach. Peter delivered a sermon that was gospel-centered. It was about the fact that they were lost, and their sin put Jesus on the cross, and then they laid him in a tomb, and he rose again. The gospel truth is the foundation of the apostles' teaching. So just as the church was founded upon the preaching of the gospel, and Paul would say to the Ephesians that it's founded upon uh, the prophets and apostles. And what did they teach? They taught about Jesus. So just as it was founded upon the preaching of the gospel, the church will only continue to advance or grow in the world by holding fast to the true gospel. God's salvation of fallen humankind through the death and resurrection of Jesus. If we attempt to uh, follow the pattern that they've set forth here in Acts chapter 2, without the truth of the gospel, we will never make it and it won't be of any eternal value. The gospel, as we said last week, is the means by which we are transformed into the image of Christ. The gospel is essential in the life of the church. So the very bare bones, the apostolic teaching refers to the gospel, but it is beyond that. The gospel headlines all the teachings of Jesus. What did he say at the Great Commission? He said, make disciples and one of the aspects of making disciples is teaching them to observe what? All I've commanded you. So we have the gospel, but we also have all the teachings of Jesus. There's much that can be said here. Maybe we can un unfold it a little more as we eat lunch today. Those of you who are sticking around for lunch. But we have a, we have a problem in our culture, we often reduce apostolic teaching. We often reduce Christian teaching as it relates to the Bible as like a guidebook, right? We've heard that before. You know, the, the, the Bible, God's word is, is a how-to manual. No, it's not. No, it's not a how-to manual. It's not, it's not a road map. I know all that sounds cute, and there may be some way I, I understand you're communicating something that is true, but no, it's not a road map. So often those things are self-focused too. I would tell you today that devotion to Christ's teachings as they committed themselves to here further manifests the reality of the kingdom. You devote yourselves we devote ourselves to Christ's teaching, we're going to look more and more like Jesus every time we get together. We're going to look more and more like Jesus to the world out there. We're going to be 
more loving with one another, more patient with one another, kinder to one another, manifesting the reality of the kingdom in greater ways, ultimately reflecting what will be the perfected kingdom when Jesus returns. Apostolic teaching. We'll keep going. This teaching is also authenticated teaching. You saw there in verse 43, signs and wonders were being done. So God used signs and wonders to authenticate the gospel message as it made progress. Do you, do you remember, uh, we, we got to remember, the, the Bible is not completed in the hands of all the people of the early church. Like, it's, it's being written as they fellowship. It's being written as they gather. It's being written as they're making disciples. So God authenticated the gospel message through signs and wonders performed by the apostles primarily. Turn a little further or look down a little further, you see the the next uh, chapter, Acts 3, talks about a miracle that has been performed to authenticate the word of God. And we look at that and we may think, well, well, if this was the early church, then certainly we in the church ought to be seeing miracles performed and signs performed. But I would, I would, I would ask you, first off, can God do miracles today? Absolutely. Absolutely. But here's the, the greatest miracle above all miracles outside of the gospel itself that we have the Bible completed in our hands. I think it's interesting how many people look for a sign or a wonder and they don't pick up the Bible. God has told you what you need to know. Here it is. Devote yourself to this. So there's no need. We need to go looking for some other authentication God has given us his word. Remember what Jesus taught? He said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. And then he began to talk about the gospel. Matthew 16, 4. Practically speaking, the teaching of the church ought to be what weaves everything together. I have sought, maybe not so well at times, but I have sought since coming to Cedarview to try to simplify church life. We live in a world that is uh, running us to death, giving us everything in our way. I want the church to be the thing that gives people rest. When we gather together, let's maintain what is essential and not all the periphery. These are the things that have motivated myself and Kyle to put together our D-group material. While we've put together these sermon guides, we want it to be very simple. You gather with the church and any other context, you have resources to help that person and that person help you grow in your faith and become more like Jesus. We tend to complicate stuff in our society. I would say the Christian faith is simple. It doesn't mean it's easy, though. Teaching. First rhythm. Second rhythm. 
Fellowship. Fellowship. You look at 42, the second part there, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And I take the breaking of bread and prayers as an explanation of fellowship here. I think there are a couple of kinds of fellowship. First off, there is table fellowship. A lot of commentators emphasize that this is referring supremely to the Lord's Supper, and I would agree with that. There's one table that we come around that signifies our fellowship. It's the bread and the cup. But beyond that, there are many tables that we gather around. This is one reason I'm convinced the early church was made up of Baptists, because they eat together all the time. Right? I'm just kidding. Don't think I said that Acts 2 is about Baptists. But you would think, like, I've heard folks that don't like how much churches get together and eat. I'm going to tell you, look at Acts chapter 2. They're doing it almost every day. Get together for a meal. Look, the way I see it, if, if you're going to eat probably three times a day, most of us going to eat three times a day, why not do it with brothers and sisters in Christ and encourage one another? Table fellowship. It definitely refers to the Lord's Supper, but it extends in other ways to our common bond in Christ. You notice how the first church devoted themselves to this this kind of table fellowship. They immediately valued and prioritized their table fellowship, naturally testifying to the rhythm that had become normal for them. Speaking of rhythms... Do you know when we participate in the supper together? Do you know? Do you think about it before you show up? Or do you show up and say, oh, hey, Lord's Supper today? I would encourage you, if you don't anticipate the supper, I would say that rhythm has not become important to you. And beyond that, if you know the supper is coming up, it is all the more reason for you to make every effort to be here and partake of the elements with your brothers and sisters. That's evidence of a solid rhythm. There's table fellowship, but then I'm going to call this heavenly fellowship. It says breaking of bread and prayers. I would submit to you that prayer may be the most important factor in developing meaningful relationships. You feel like you're, you're not having like good friendships or strong friendships? Or are they not coming together for you here? Start praying for folks. Not just praying for them, but praying for specific things about them. Write them down on your list. Put them in your journal. Pray for them. There's no way you cannot know somebody that you're praying intentionally for. Pray for them. I think our prayers for one another, and I think our prayers together. When we're together and we're praying, I think that even further reveals our heart's condition before God. When I pray, I know you're hearing my desires and my longings. I know your kids, when you're at home and you say the blessing, Dad, Mom, you you pray before you eat, all right? They're going to hear what is important to you as you talk to God. That is meaningful spiritual relationship. Praying for one another, 
praying with one another. I believe this guards our love and care for one another. And it grieves me. Granted, I was on, you know, sabbatical for six weeks, but it grieves me that there were things that happened in the life of the church, very, very important things that I did not hear about for a while. And it hurts me because we were not able to minister as we are called to do. How am I going to pray? At the very least, I need to pray for you amid your struggles. Y'all need to pray for one another amid your struggles. Table fellowship, heavenly fellowship we see right here. This word for fellowship is is quanania. You've probably heard the word before if you've been around the life of the church. That Greek word is quanania. And it, it has more to it than just like a static nature. It's, it's dynamic. It's, it's moving. This is why Paul uses that word so often to describe partnership in the gospel. See, our fellowship is more than getting around a table. We're going somewhere. We're moving in a direction toward the kingdom as a church. We want to be more like Christ than we used to be. We want to be healthier as a church than we used to be. This is the kind of fellowship that they had. Ongoing, rhythmic. Third rhythm, service, verses 44 and 45. 44 and 45. It says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I think there's a a couple of assumptions right here in these verses. First off, the service they rendered assumes togetherness. It assumes togetherness. We may tie it to fellowship as well. Their common fellowship fueled these other rhythms. They were together, is what it says. The New American Commentary says this depicts the gathered community with a strong emphasis on their unity. And right now, I'll read texts like this, and I'm like, we can't even do what they did while we're in the midst of this pandemic. I lament the fact that we have members who are essentially stuck at home. We have members in separate rooms because I am convinced that it cripples the church. I've been talking about it a lot this week, and one of the things that has been a recurring thought in my mind is that some of you, though I have laid eyes on you most Sundays for the past year or so, some of you have never laid eyes on some of the people that are in the room back there. And vice versa. Do you realize what that does to our togetherness? Do you realize how that limits our service to one another? So this text assumes that there is a togetherness. And I would, I would ask you, I would ask you, practically speaking right now, if you don't know somebody back there, what steps are you taking to minister to them, to serve them? And back there, What steps are you taking? Is it a text message, a phone call, a Facebook message? You may not even know who you need to contact, but you can get me on the phone. Hey, I heard we got some new members. Tell me who they are so I can reach out to them. Give me their phone number. I got all that information. So how are we overcoming that barrier right now? 
in serving one another. So it assumes togetherness, but it assumes also sacrifice. We read there, they had all things in common. They sold their possessions and gave the proceeds to all as any has, had need. Their togetherness allowed them to see and know the needs before them so that they could specifically meet those needs. It says they had all things in common. And I know you super Western Americans, are, you're a little uncomfortable with that. They had all things in common. Well, well, tell me exactly what that means. What it means is that they counted one another more significant than their possessions or their wealth. That's what it means. You know, the funny thing is, we balk at that idea, right? Because so much of our lives are built around us and our possessions. We balk at that idea. But in reality, in order to meet one another's needs, you know what it would amount to for us? It would amount, for, amount to foregoing may, maybe a luxury of some kind. You know, when you buy that new car, maybe you don't get the premium package so that you could serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's probably as much as it would amount to. If there is a significant need among us, the church, we ought to be the first ones to mobilize and serve in very practical ways. I want you to remember that this is a rhythm, a normal recurring pattern practiced by the church. And don't take this lightly. Do you remember what happened to Ananias and Sapphira when they said, hey, I sold it and I gave it all, but they didn't? God killed them on the spot. When you think, of, think about stuff like that, it's hard to devalue this kind of service in the life of the church. Every time a need arose, it was their rhythm. It was their pattern to mobilize and meet it. As I was preparing, I was thinking about platelets in our body. And it works great because we are the body of Christ, right? Right? You know how platelets work in your body? When there's a wound, the platelets, it's like they rush to clot and bring healing. That's how the body of Christ works. When there's a wound, when there's a wound in the body, if one member is hurting, then the church gathers around that need, that wound, and brings healing. It's not just spiritual stuff either. I mean, this is practical stuff. Let's keep these things in mind as we know of one another's needs. This rhythm seems to be a natural response to people in need, but it also gave them credibility with outsiders. One writer, Rodney Stark, a sociologist, don't know if he's a believer, honestly, sociologist, he wrote a book basically uh, from a sociological perspective that examines the various factors that contributed to the exponential growth of early Christianity. And one of the key factors that he emphasizes is the church's willingness to care for the sick during epidemics. When everybody else was running away, the church came to minister. 
They ministered to expectant mothers, women who were devalued. They ministered to the marginalized of society, the poor. They prevented each other from being poor, as we see in their service to one another. Seeing these things, even from a sociological perspective, you can understand how the church gained favor with all the people. So there is teaching, fellowship, service. Fourthly, worship. We're going to close pretty quickly, even though we have two more. Worship, verses 46 and 47. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, There's a second reference to food there. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. I think in this text, we get a more complete concept of worship from this passage. We are too quick to limit our ideas of worship to music and singing. And I think it is funny. You look in the New Testament, you'd be hard-pressed to find any case that relates anything at all to music as a major value in the life of the early church. We don't hardly read anything about music, but I think it's so funny. It's laughable to me when church folk nowadays want to have an opinion about music, which absolutely is not based on the Bible. That's not even important to them. Their worship was built around gathering together in two ways. You see, a structured gathering. It seems that they intentionally went to the temple together to worship, which was already a habit for them if they were Jews. And then you see relational gathering. So the worship of the early church was a rhythm of structured and relational gatherings. They attended the temple together. They went to each other's homes Man, so much application we could draw right there. Many conversations. Look, I know how hard it is because Aaron and I, even on sabbatical, we sought to have, I think it was about a list of six families we wanted to have over for dinner just during that time. And we got to about one of those. Look, so you see, I'm setting goals for myself, my family, and they are hard to attain. But one thing I see in the scriptures is people eating meals together, people that love Jesus, fellowshipping together in that way, in my home, being hospitable to one another. Much of the evidence in Acts points to the churches gathering in the homes of the saints, even when there was no other option. These two things that we see here, structure gathering and relational gathering, all these things produced thanksgiving and praise to God, as you see in the text right there. I hope you make the connection. We get together. We have thought through very carefully, most times very carefully, about how our service is going to go. Kyle and I, Josh, we think through what we want to do when we have our structured gatherings. But there are times when I just want to be with you, okay? I just want to be with you, be around you. Hang out with you. Talk about whatever you want to talk about. Watch a sporting event together. Whatever. Let's just spend time together. I think in all of these ways, we see more of what God intends when he calls us to 
a living sacrifice, Romans 12. We're not going to go there for time's sake. But if you go to Romans 12, 1 and 2, you know the phrase, uh, living sacrifice, that we shouldn't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. He calls us to that living sacrifice, which is our, as he says, Paul says, spiritual worship. It's an act of spiritual worship. But then you know what he does next. He goes right into the life of the church. So if you want to present your body as a living sacrifice like you've been called to do, the next thing you ought to be doing is functioning in the life of the church. You've been given a gift. You are a member of the body. Exercise that for the benefit of your brothers and sisters. Finally, very quickly, the fifth rhythm, evangelism. Evangelism. Verse 47, at the end it says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And very briefly, very briefly, this is divinely directed. Evangelism is divinely directed. God works out his purposes in saving exactly how he intends. God does the saving. I want you to get that that passage in mind. Acts 16, when Paul and his entourage, you know, you recall, they intend to go somewhere on mission to evangelize. And then he says, but the Spirit prevented us. The Spirit prevented us. You see, when we are obedient to proclaim the gospel, God will do what he will with that word. As we know, it won't return void. It won't fail to accomplish what God intends anytime it is preached. Of course, there are going to be seasons where we don't see the fruit more immediately. There are going to be seasons when we see the word of God taking root and bearing much fruit. It's divinely directed, but it's also missionally driven, missionally driven. If you take a walk through the book of Acts, you'll note all the occasions when proclamation or preaching is emphasized. They heard the word. They proclaimed the gospel. The obedience of the church being guided by the ministry of the spirit. Evangelism is divinely directed and missionally driven. So five rhythms right there. Teaching, fellowship, service, worship, and evangelism. Five rhythms right there. I truly believe that this testimony of the early church gives us a wonderful picture of what every local church ought to be doing. It's not going to look the same in every setting. It's going to look very different. But I, I would argue that these five things ought to be our focus as we intend to make disciples. I believe that as we engage these five things together, these five rhythms together, as we cultivate these rhythms, we are going to be stronger in making disciples. So I want to bring us to our so what question. So what? There's a few things that I would encourage you, just a few that came to mind as I was concluding my prep. 
and I phrase these in uh, imperatives. First off, combat self-interest by elevating the community. Combat self-interest by elevating the community. Uh, this example comes to mind, this real-life example. We got a brother who is considering or being considered for a, a new job. And I was delighted to know that his, his first measure of seeking support was to talk to his brothers in the faith. That's what I'm talking about. Maybe you're thinking about that new car with the premium package, and you say, hey, guys, do you think this is a good decision? Brothers and sisters in Christ, should I spend this kind of money? What would it look like for us to actually care what the church thinks in our personal decisions? I'm not telling you how this works out. I'm just telling you we will be better off if we can do that right there. Combat self-interest by elevating the community. Give the church greater influence. Secondly, so what of the three? <laughs> Increase the frequency of these rhythms. Hey, very simply, if it's your habit or rhythm to attend church like once or twice a month, make it three or four. It's that simple. <laughs> That's what I'm asking you to do. If it's common for you to talk to somebody else in the church on the phone, maybe once a month, why don't you increase that? If it's uncommon for you to have a meal with another family or another person in the church, schedule it. Schedule it more frequently. I think disciple-making suffers when these are only occasional rather than rhythmic. Increase the frequency of these rhythms. And then thirdly, finally, take the initiative to serve others. I'm so thankful when people come to the church, they're new, they want to serve, and they ask me, like, hey, where, where can I serve? And I understand the point. You know, there are opportunities, and maybe I can help you find them. But I would say, hey, be observant. Be observant. Look for those opportunities to serve. You see a need. Step in and meet the need. Don't wait on a title. Don't wait on a position. Don't wait on someone to tell you what to do. See a need and meet the need. Seems to me that the early church was good at this. And why are they good at this? Because the gospel was transforming them. The gospel was changing who they are. It was making them more like Jesus. So as we conclude, I would ask you, do you have the gospel truth? Do you know Jesus? Do you know him in a saving way? Has he rescued you from your sin? Have you confessed him as Lord, only Lord? Have you committed your life to him? Has he saved you? If you don't know that, you need to repent of sin today and put your life on Jesus. Follow him. Count the costs. And I can already tell you it's worth it. Follow him. You may do that today through repentance and faith. I hope today also, uh, saints, you'll be able to wrestle with some of the things that we see in the early church. 
some of the things that probably don't characterize our lives. I guarantee you, most of us can look in this text and see, yeah, there are glaring problems in my life if that's what the life of the church is supposed to look like. Misplaced priorities, really, really bad or non-rhythms. Let's take our time as we respond today, repent and be restored. Father, we do thank you.